Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 1 this morning. Galatians, excuse me, chapter 2. Galatians, chapter 2. As we continue our study, really important time, not just in our world, but I think in the church as well, because I think we're running out of time. Um, We'll talk to that in a minute. I'll need your patience today and uh, your prayers. I'm kind of in the middle of a perfect storm here. We're to treat my throat, and you can see it's a little better. We discontinued the breathing treatments, and that has caused a challenge in my breathing. So hopefully I get through this next week, and we'll get back on everything, and uh, I'll be the picture of health. God God willing. That's the least of our problems. The world is on fire. My mind goes to Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Daniel, chapter 11. The major players of the world, often interpreted as China and Russia, Iran and the Arab states and Israel, come to a major conflict. I'm not saying that this is the time of the end. But you ought to be alarmed at what's happening as this world rages right now. But I want you to be alarmed for the right reasons. I don't want your curiosity to be solely piqued about trying to figure this out from the prophetic scriptures. But perhaps maybe you're moved to, to get the gospel out clearly with some boldness that you've lacked in the past as potential for this is alarming. And even in Western media, uh, a drastic shift towards Christianity and the negative and the message of the hope and the gospel. The truth of the matter is the world needs grace today more than it's ever needed grace. The common grace to bring some civility back to this world, but if God bringing things to a conclusion. We know that he won't do that. Time will tell. We're not the first generation to look at some of these things and wonder, could this be the time? But I believe there's some important, healthy thinking to consider this might be the time to make sure of your salvation, to speak to those that you love and are important to you, and to unashamedly understand that salvation is by grace alone. The only way we find our way home is by grace. And if you're still trusting in yourself, look at the world. How has that worked out? I suggest not very well. Not very well. For God's people in the midst of all of this, the challenges of the Western world and that Middle Eastern region. What an important song to sing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Are you thankful for the hope and the security and the promise and the blessing and the assurance that no matter what might happen, no one will pluck us from our Father's hand? No one. What else do we have? But that's the very gospel that Paul is fighting for. The purity of the gospel that sees 
the work of the gospel from beginning to end in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. But an increasing individualistic culture and society has grown so self-important that they want to make sure that they have a say in all of this. And I want to encourage you that God has had the say, and it is the final say. And if you know him, you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that gospel that has been challenged from the first century until today. It is that gospel that has been undermined by adding to or taking away. It is that gospel of significant and only importance for eternal matters of faith and practice that sustains us and keeps us and allows us to know everything's going to be okay. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul writes, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and sat before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he had worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised. He worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, the Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we take a glimpse at this passage of Scripture and reflect on a couple of other significant passages, that you would remind us of the truth of the gospel, that you would remind us of efficacious grace that rescues our soul, that you'd remind us The story of the gospel is all about Christ, what he's done and accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary, and is embraced by faith and faith alone. Remind us that when we consider our testimony and our story in the context of the true gospel, that 
We cannot help but bring glory and honor the God and Father of all creation for what He has provided for us in salvation. I pray that you would equip us with sound hearts and minds to fight the good fight, the temptations to add and take away from the gospel, but more than ever, we need discernment to know the difference between right and almost right when it comes to the gospel. The content of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel is our responsibility, and after that, it is a work of your Spirit that transforms. May we be faithful to the gospel, allowing your spirit to do the work. May it resound to your glory alone. So encourage us and bless us as we reflect upon this passage in Galatians. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked a little bit about Paul's story of God's intervening grace. There are several passages of Scripture where Paul gives his testimony And the book of Acts, and it's a consistent testimony that God rescued his soul, not because he was searching for God, but because God found him on the road to Damascus. Paul then goes and begins to preach the gospel almost immediately. We're going to find out that he's been preaching it for some time, and now he's in a storm where people are are saying he's, he's not an apostle. They're attacking him personally. And in these ad hominem attacks, they are raising up others above him and even questioning his apostleship and the very essence and content of his gospel. And Paul is taking the time to defend himself against all of that and draw truth back to the gospel that he's been preaching. We'll see out of Galatians chapter 2 and, and then another passage in Acts Uh, that they're kind of passages that balance each other out as to what was really happening when Paul is relaying this incident and experience in Galatians chapter 2. I want to remind you again, though, in Paul's gospel, actually, it's Christ's gospel through Paul, that true saving faith involves drastic lifestyle change. For Paul, it was overnight For many of us, it takes a little longer. We're a little thick-headed, a little stubborn sometimes, but it always happens. True salvation always changes a person, as we sang, from the inside out. There's always fruit and evidence to the genuineness of one's faith. Yet unfortunately, there are those who've undermined and made shipwreck the faith and who have allowed us to understand somehow that Genuine saving faith doesn't have to result in change. Genuine saving faith has room and allowance for you to know all of the benefits of salvation and own none of the responsibilities for obedience to God. And this has been coming from the early centuries, and, and our ABF and will continue this path this morning in the chapel. We are tracing historically some of the developments that have led to this belief 
that salvation doesn't always mean change, but that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes you and frees you from your sin. It changes you and grants you forgiveness of the consequence of your sin. It changes you and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. It changes you and you produce the fruit of the Spirit through the Spirit. It changes you and you have hope unto everlasting life. It changes everything about you. And some miraculously overnight like Paul and for the rest of us incrementally, but we can see the change. But for those who say change is not necessary, I would suggest that that is not the gospel. So if you'd quickly, just quickly, turn over to Matthew chapter 13. And I mentioned it last week, but I want to take the time a little bit this week to look at it. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus provides the parable of the soils, or the sower and the seed. He's speaking in parables as he transitions in his ministry. And he says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose and they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away, and other seeds fell among the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples come to Jesus wondering about this parable and its interpretation. And if you go to verse 18 of this same text in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, this is the interpretation of the parable. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. He's describing a group of people through one situation or another have heard the gospel of the kingdom that gospel of the kingdom has fallen on hard ground where it doesn't take any root whatsoever. It is trampled under the foot of men. And even though they have sat under the gospel, they are unbelievers. Satan has come and snatched away that word from their ear and from their heart. He is speaking to those who are not believers. But I suggest that he is speaking much in this parable to those who aren't believers. And this is where things go sideways a little bit. In the history of the challenge to the gospel, we're looking at a period of time in our ABF of the remonstrance of the Arminians in 1610, who made the conclusion that, that you can be truly saved but there can be no evidence of that. You can be truly saved, and there's no, no change. 
and to accept the gospel, even if you fall away from that gospel, is just as saving as accepting a gospel and staying true to that gospel. I want you to, I want you to know that that's a lie, and it's a lie because of what Jesus says in the parable of the soils in this text. He says the first group of people where the seed was sown on these pathways that were packed down took no seed. Satan robbed them of that seed. They are not believers. And then he talks about the second group. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. This rocky ground was Symbolic of some of this limestone outcroppings under, under the soil in Israel, where, where plants couldn't reach any kind of depth. They'd kind of spring up and then they'd wither because there's no deep root system. As Jesus identifies those where the seed has been sown on rocky ground, he says, This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. In the period of the Reformation, this would be called noticia. They hear the facts of the gospel, and they like the facts of the gospel. They like the notion of the forgiveness of sins. They like the notion of the rescue from the consequence of sin. They at least acknowledge and accept the truth and the facts of the gospel. But accepting the facts of the gospel, is that sufficient enough for salvation? No. James says in chapter 2, verse 10, even the demons believe and tremble. They know that truth. They understand that truth. For those who, who hear the truth and, and they say, wow, listen carefully. For those who are building their assurance on some kind of experience of euphoria, Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful. That's not a true testament or, or measurement of salvation. And yet Arminius and Hodges and many others are saying they're saved and they'll fall away from the faith, but they're just as saved. That's not what Jesus says. Nowhere does he give them the assurance of salvation. The plant withers and it dies and the experience and the emotional euphoria are insufficient to carry them this sinful, painful world. He talks about the third group of people. Verse 21, again, the second group. He has no root in himself. No root, no groundedness to faith. He hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but no root. And that emotion only endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises... On account of that same word, he falls away. Let me ask you a question. What kind of security is found if you can come to Christ and fall away from Christ and then come to Christ and fall away from Christ? There is no security in that because you're basing that security on an emotion, and that is not the same thing as efficacious grace that rescues your soul and changes everything. Verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, cares for the world and the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and it proves 
unfruitful. These are the people who not just hear the facts of the gospel and agree with them, but they assent to the facts of the gospel. And they say, we, we agree with that. We, we believe in that. But my opinion, what is missing in the context of that surface salvation is there's no repentance. Do you notice they're not called out of and away from the world and its issues. They never give up the world and its issues. They never repent of that and and trust solely in Christ. And and that kind of faith that never walks away, never goes through change, proves unfaithful. And pretty soon, they're the same place. Their faith may last a little longer. They may even serve in the church. They might put some money in a plate. They might go to church for a while, but in time, they're absent and they're gone. In my opinion, this is many of the nuns that we read about who have rejected the church and the gospel. There's a fourth individual that stands out against the rest of them. And Jesus says, as for the one sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word Noticia, yes, I understand the gospel. This is the one who yields and understands that truth. A census, I agree with this. This is the one who bears fruit. In some cases, a hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30, and sometimes none. You notice that's not in the text. There's only one kind of soil that receives the seed and grows to a fiducia kind of faith that that changes, and that is the genuine faith based on the facts of the gospel and embracing of those facts and an application of that reality into every area of their life, their thinking and their feeling and their choices. That is the one who is truly a believer. The rest are not. Because they're depending on other things, and their experience is shallow. And for Arminius to say their faith is just as real as the one who endures to the end is indefensible. God is interested in saving you to the uttermost, not for a couple of weeks. God is interested in rescuing your soul holistically, not for a couple of years. God is interested in rescuing your soul, but he calls you to repentance and to leave the cares of this world so they don't choke out that faith. But for whom God calls, predestines, he also saves them. He glorifies himself in them. He assures them of their salvation, and they produce fruit. Those are the only believers in the context of this parable of the sower. They confess, they repent, they acknowledge, and transformation is a result. And we're not all in the same place. Some 30, some 60, some, some 100. But what is God doing in your life? And how has how he changed you? That's an important question that all of us need to ask ourselves. And that is the parable of the soil. Not everyone's experience is the same. Everybody has a story. There's only one hero in the story of salvation, and that is in Christ himself. 
Galatians tells us through this same Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Did you notice how different that is from the one who allowed the weeds to come out and choke out the message? (laughs) That's the difference between true salvation and repentance and false gospel. Well, not only does everyone have a story that has been grounded in Christ. Every preacher and every minister and every time period and epoch in history have a story too. Where this gospel of salvation in Christ alone is challenged. Where Satan and the world's care seem to rob us of any kind of assurance. And in many ways, Paul is again saying, if we don't get the gospel right, there are dire ramifications for that parable of the sower reflects that, and now Paul deals with it in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, just a a quick warning. I believe that the truth of verses 1 through 10 are crystal clear when you get through it. There's a section in here that commentators struggle with because grammatically, Paul is all over the place. He is, he is passionate about the gospel. He's upset with those who are changing the gospel. He, he talks in parenthetical kind of statements and interjects things here and there. It's a really difficult passage to translate. But the outcome's pretty simple, so, so hang with me a little bit. Then after 14 years, Paul said, again defending the gospel, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, this is a really important point of the story. Paul is saying, I've now been preaching the gospel, this gospel that I'm defending for 14 years. Not a novice at this. He's sharing the reality that over those 14 years, God has reaped great benefit for his glory in Christ alone. He introduces us to Barnabas, a key companion of Paul on his first missionary journey. And Titus, a Greek who came to know Christ as Savior, and he takes them to Jerusalem. (coughs) And some think that maybe he took them to Jerusalem when he delivered an offering that was collected from the saints at Antioch. I believe even more so, he takes them to Jerusalem to defend his gospel because we're going to find out that in the context of all that's happening, Paul has been undermined in such a significant way that the believers in Galatia are starting to hedge a little bit. And Paul's really concerned about that. As you look at the passage of Scripture, Paul is not going to Jerusalem to get the thumbs up of approval or some confirmation in his apostleship from the pillars of the church at Jerusalem. He is going solely for the point of defending the gospel that is in Christ alone. There are a group of people that we now identify as the Judaizers. These are Jews who profess to have come to Christ as Savior, but they're demanding that, that Gentile Christians not, much, much, not only just accept Jesus, they, they have to keep the Jewish religious customs if they're truly going to be saved. They're adding to the gospel. They have infiltrated the church. And I believe that one of the reasons that that Titus is mentioned here is that because uh, some of these Judaizers had tried to 
to catch Paul in a trap saying, ah, you're circumcised Timothy. How come you didn't circumcise Titus? And they're trying to undermine his gospel in any way they possibly can. Sadly, we're going to read in Galatians chapter 2 that even Barnabas kind of gets caught into the middle of this fight and doesn't travel with Paul on another missionary journey. And and Paul addresses that in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Now flip back quickly to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, we have a historic event. And and I take, now listen, commentators are are 50-50 on on the connection here and all the intricacies. Um, Historically, it has always been Galatians 2 tied to the Jerusalem council. Others take a different view. Um, It's almost dead even, but I take the view that Paul is going to Jerusalem to defend his gospel, and the defense of the gospel takes place particularly in this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 15 that has been dubbed historically the Jerusalem Council. As Paul goes to this council again, he's not looking for someone to validate his apostleship. He's there to voice his concern that these Judaizers are changing the gospel, which Paul says there is no other gospel. Now, what verse 15, but, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The thesis is pretty clear, right? He's talking about these Judaizers. True salvation isn't in Christ alone. You have to keep the law and be circumcised. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, the Judaizers Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles through the Antioch church and the elders about this question of the Judaizers and and what is the gospel. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the people as they're sharing the realities of the gospel and the change that was taking the place, the believers in Jerusalem are rejoicing. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and by the way, we will find that the debate isn't among the pillars of the church and Paul. It is these Judaizers and Paul. That's where the debate resides. Brothers, Peter said, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the gospel, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Paul or Peter received that vision in Acts chapter 10 the sheet of all unclean animals, and he sees that the gospel has been afforded and provided to the Gentiles. So he speaks to that, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, these Gentile believers, just as he did to us. And he made, God made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles saved in Christ alone, having their hearts cleansed by faith. Now therefore, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe 
that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter stands up in the midst and says, here's the deal. It's the same gospel, Paul's gospel and my gospel. It's the same gospel. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they declared what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Remember, apostleship demanded three things. They had to have seen the resurrected Christ. Paul did. That's the accounts we mentioned when we started. He had to be commissioned by that Christ. Paul did. Acts 9 and 22 and onwards. And you had to have signs and wonders, miraculous capacities attached to your gospel to verify your apostleship and the truth of that gospel. And as Paul talks about the signs and wonders that God did through the preaching of his gospel to the Gentiles, the assembly was, was amazed at the wonders that God had done among them. The, the end of the council as they choose Paul and Barnabas to go back with a letter from these pillars in Jerusalem saying, it's the same gospel. It's the same gospel. It's the same gospel. And what is that gospel? You'll be able to say it in your sleep. In Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Was Peter and Paul preaching different gospels to different people? No. And the Jerusalem Council affirms that. Now flip back to Galatians. As we pick up the story, you keep that in the back of your mind. As Paul says in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them these apostles, though privately before those who seemed influential. Peter, James, and John identified in the text. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, I, I... I wanted him to make sure that I was not running or hadn't run in vain. Was Paul doubting the content of the gospel that he was preaching? No. No. But he sees that this schism in the church, if we're going to divide ourselves between Jews and Gentiles and circumcision and non-circumcision, will have horrible consequences to the walk of the believers who accept Christ by grace alone through faith alone. It will divide the church it will destroy the testimony of, of God. Remember what we said about the gospel? When you add something to the gospel by way of works, you rob God of his glory. And what is the glory of God in salvation? He did everything and you did nothing. To God be the glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Amen. It minimizes the work of Christ. It makes it trivial. The death of Jesus Christ was not sufficient. Let me tell you something. It was absolutely sufficient. And God the Father said, I am satisfied with that penalty. And he rescued your soul through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? See how clear this is? Back to the parable of the sowers. To add anything to the gospel that gives you confidence leaves your soul in an unredeemed state, and there are eternal consequences to that. That's why Paul says in chapter 1, whoever preaches another gospel, let him be accursed, damned to hell. 
Because they preached another gospel? No, because it wasn't the saving gospel. Peter, James, and John say there is one saving gospel. Paul is preaching that gospel, and Paul is concerned about the unity of the church. So he meets privately with the leaders. He wants to make sure God's people are not drawn back into keeping the law because there's no way that you can keep the law and be redeemed. First three, and this is where it gets a little crazy. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. There's speculation, and probably good speculation, that this is because Paul did have Timothy circumcised as he took him into the synagogues to preach the gospel. There's a passage in Acts chapter 16, we won't take the time, but Paul is, is, is taking Timothy along with him. Timothy's mother was a Jew, and his father was a Greek. Timothy had a, a great testimony among the Jews, and Paul wanted Timothy to go with him as he began to preach in the synagogues and, and preach in these places of the Jews that they might hear the gospel, and for Timothy to have access to those people in, in, in the temple for Timothy to be able to accompany Paul and, and those gathering places for the Jews, he would have to be circumcised. Timothy encouraging, or Timothy encouraged to be circumcised, and Titus encouraged not to be circumcised are two separate stories. Titus was a Greek, it wasn't required of him. Now listen carefully. When Paul asked Timothy to be circumcised, it had nothing to do with salvation. He didn't want his uncircumcision to get in the way of preaching the gospel to the Jews. You follow me? It wasn't a salvific issue. The Judaizers had twisted it. They made it seem like Paul was being a hypocrite, but he wasn't. So these false brothers, these pseudo-Christians, literally, these frauds, secretly brought in this heresy, slipping in, robbing us of, of our freedom and bringing us back under the law, verse, four, verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Thank God for that. Paul said, I'll have none of that. I will fight for the gospel and the only gospel in Christ alone. We didn't yield to their influence. But perhaps he's in Jerusalem because some now are yielding to that influence. We're going to find even a little bit later in our study that Peter is taken in by this. And there's a public confrontation. All that to say this, be very careful because the undermining of the gospel is so incredibly subtle. And if you are not on your toes, people will bring all kinds of baggage to the gospel that undermines the gospel and the security of salvation in Christ alone. Paul says... I didn't yield to them so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. The integrity of the gospel that he received and preached for 14 years was the same integrity of the gospel that the Jerusalem leaders preached. It was the same gospel that saved both Jews and Gentiles. To God be the glory forever and ever. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, it makes no 
makes no difference to me. Now listen carefully. Some say, well, Paul is being really sarcastic to these leaders in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. No, what he's being sarcastic towards is these accusers, the Judaizers, because they said, you're under the pillars, the apostles. You're under their authority. You need to get your gospel approved by them. You are a lesser of a disciple. So he's using their words against them. Why? Based on the Jerusalem council. He knows they agreed with him. He knows that they put to end this, this whole debate. He's not taking shots at God's leadership in Jerusalem. He's taking shots at the Judaizers who are creating all this trouble. So he says, those who seem to be influential, you're telling me that these men in Jerusalem are the influential ones. Well, let me tell you this. They preach the same gospel. You see, you see the effect here? He continues. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Those influential ones that you're banking on, undermining my ministry, they didn't add anything to my gospel. They preached the same gospel. He's going back and arguing to defend the gospel against these Judaizers. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he had worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, works also through me and mine to the Gentiles. Who was working? It is the Holy Spirit of God who brings new life and regeneration. Now listen carefully. We have to get the gospel message right, but we have no capacity to change the hearts of men. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But the Spirit does it when we get the gospel right, so we must get the gospel right. That's the argument that he's making. Paul says the same Spirit that worked in Peter is the same Spirit that worked in me, and the gospel yielded amazing benefits, amazing benefits. When James Cephas, Aramaic name for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. Isn't that great? How did Paul get saved? Grace. How did Paul maintain the integrity of the gospel? Grace. How did Paul get blessed with so many converts? The grace of God in Christ alone. When they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, this right hand of fellowship, a hand of agreement. The right hand of partnership is a good way of saying this. Peter and James and John saying, we're in this together, Paul. Let's go preach the gospel. May God raise up men who will get into that partnership today. Let's go and preach the gospel in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, by opening up the Scripture alone that is sufficient for salvation. Here are the key takeaways. There are and will be false teachers in the church throughout its existence, and there are today false teachers in evangelicalism who are preaching another gospel, and we must be on guard, trying to help through the history our, our people understand in the ABF what to look for and understand how it changes the gospel. A second key takeaway, the law keeps you in bondage and reminds you of your sin and screams you'll never be good enough. 
But there is a freedom that comes in Christ, that He frees us from the power of sin and, and, and the, the stranglehold of sin, and He frees us to live in, in, in a life characterized by grace that produces fruit. And the third takeaway, truth is bigger than the authority that it comes from. This wasn't Paul's gospel. It wasn't John's gospel. It wasn't Peter's gospel. It wasn't James's gospel. Whose gospel was it? It was the gospel according to God through Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. That's why Scripture critically matters when we get the gospel right. It doesn't matter who's endorsing or who is objecting. The power of the gospel is in God alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, and through faith alone. And the authority of that gospel does not come from Paul or anyone else. And when I sit here, I was going to say Stan, when I sit here this morning, listen carefully. This is not my gospel. This is the gospel of God unto salvation that will change you drastically. We have to get it right. Not because I say so. Because God said so. We've got to go back to the book. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word. It's given you everything you need for life and godliness. To God be the glory forever and ever. And just when we think we got it right, I'm going to do this quickly and return to it next week. Verse 10, only... They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Wait a second. I thought you said they agreed with your gospel. Are they now adding to the gospel? No. They're simply saying that the gospel has consequences. That's all. The gospel brings about change. In this passage of Scripture, we're introduced to this reality of of may and must If they are saying, in order to be saved, you must give to the poor, they are adding to the gospel. If they're saying, we are asking you to give to the poor because of the gospel, that is not adding to the gospel. It is acknowledging that the gospel has consequences. And I truly believe that the one asking for those to give to the poor is James, who spends considerable time in his epistle saying, what? Faith without works is dead. There's some things that we expect of you. You can go back to Acts. It talks about it as well. He is not adding to the gospel any qualifications. He is simply saying the gospel has consequences. Now, everybody look up here, because I'm going to say it once. I don't have time, but this is something that gets under my skin. Social justice and feeding the poor and the oppressed is not a gospel issue. That is not the gospel that saves. Are those issues important? Yes. But they're not tied to the gospel. You're being told today that we don't preach the gospel from the Scripture. We preach the gospel by taking care of the needs of the poor. And that is not the gospel. That is a result of God's life change in a true believer that yields itself in good works. That's what James is all about. But don't conflate it with the gospel. I get really angry, you can tell. Even with little air that I have today, 
That is not the gospel. Good thing to feed the poor. Share your resources. But that is not the gospel. Feeding them without rescuing their soul is cruel because they are filled but outside of Christ. How dare us conflate that with the gospel? That's not what the text is saying. What is the text saying? The gospel is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And I'm going to finish where we started the study. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Christ Jesus, the God and God the Father who raised him from the dead, all the brothers are with me. We all agree on this, that this notion of salvation to the churches of Galatia who are listening to these Judaizers, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. To him be the glory forever and forever. Amen. Do not rob God of the glory of salvation from start to finish. God did that. May his people be filled with praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Holy, holy, holy. What a glorious gospel it is. Father, guard our hearts. Teach us to be discerning. Remind us the dangers of the culture, the changing of the gospel, and the eternal consequences of such. Raise up the next generation that will fight the good fight of the only one gospel ever given by God to man in Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And in this particular age, you give us an urgency for the gospel that saved to the uttermost, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service out by singing Crown Him.